Writers have more stories to tell than those that are written on a page. Join me as I talk about my life, loves and inspiration behind my work so far and maybe even a sneak peek into stories yet to come. Hi, I'm Chris Tetrault-Blay and this is Dead Men Talk. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 9 of Dead Men Talk. Um, I hope you're all keeping well. Thank you again as ever for tuning in. Um, whether this is the first episode you're catching of Dead Men Talk or if you've been listening to any of the previous weeks. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for tuning in, for your support, everyone who's been commenting, everyone who's been sharing. Um, it's it's really helped grow this podcast Um over the the last nine weeks, can't believe it's only been that long. Really, it's felt like I've been doing this for ages, but it's uh, it's been a great experience. Um, and keep wanting to put new content out there for you. Um, yeah, so so here we are. Um, episode nine is as promised. Um, another of me actually reading to you some of the the work that I've done since we spent most of the previous weeks talking about the Wildermore Apocalypse trilogy and the history behind it, all the ideas that went into it. Um, I thought it only right, since this will be the last Wildermore Apocalypse episode, at least for a while, to uh, to help round out this series, um, I thought I, I will, I've picked... A uh, one chapter from each of the books to read to you, um, just simply so it's uh, another opportunity for you uh, to hear some of the work. I've never actually read publicly any of the Wildermore Apocalypse um, stuff. I don't think the the public readings that I've done at some author events have been, I think, really coming out of things like House of Courtney and particularly my children's book. It's a long way to the moon. I can't recall a time that I've actually done any reading from the World of Apocalypse, so this will be this will be great for me as well, because it was what started my writing journey off. You know, Acolyte was the first thing I ever really devoted my time to and created. So, so yeah, um, I'll do it in parts. Like I say, I've got one chapter from each book. I will start with a chapter from Acolyte, of course. And it won't necessarily be where the I was going to start with the first chapter of each book. I was trying to decide which, which, um, how best to structure this, this episode. If I was going to do this, I've simply just picked my favourite chapters, either my favourite chapters to write or as I was writing them, I I felt they might be the, the turning points in the book or or the most enjoyable. I can you know it can give the reader the most impact. So um, just my opinion. So hopefully those of you who've read the book um, be an opportunity afterwards to share your favourite parts of the book, your favourite um, twists, your favourite characters, um, anything really. So yeah, this is just, just going to be a collection of mine. These are the, um, the three sort of seminal chapters from across the trilogy. So yeah, I, I hope you enjoy. So the first chapter I'm going to start with is is from Acolyte, part one of the World of Apocalypse trilogy. And it's a chapter from roughly about halfway through the book. 
So I was going to start with the, I thought it was right really to start with the opening chapter, you know, where the whole trilogy begins. But but where I've picked, um, it's a chapter that concentrates on Truman Dark um, at a point in the story where, not to give too much away, um, he found himself framed for the uh, murder of Colin Dexler, the man that he was he had devoted a couple of years to to try and put behind bars. Um, Colin Dexler, of course, is a very dangerous man. He has taken lives. He's managed to remain in society and he was the, the first man that we meet in the trilogy said to be under the influence of this spectre known as the Reaper. So this um, this chapter picks up straight after, really, where Truman has to... He's almost exiled from the main part of Wildemore where he he serves and protects as the chief of police because he is now the main suspect um, he was framed and um, framed to be in or planned by other parties to be in Colin Dexler's house when his body was discovered so he flees Truman Dark flees obviously um, trying to save himself and get him away from um, from the manhunt so, yeah, this is uh, chapter 18 in Acolyte. So, um, yep, yeah, so I should start. So, hope you enjoy. Chapter 18, March 2002. Truman awoke to find the room still in darkness. Not that he had slept much. His body was stiffening more every morning. The matches on the floor had worn thin, the duvet having also seen better days. It did little to keep the chill away, though spring was finally on its way. These days he found it difficult to bring himself to close his eyes. The drink helped in a way, but the more his mind relaxed around his constant nightmares, the less his body was fit to fight off sleep. She came to him at night, mostly. The image of Lorraine Thacker stayed with him throughout the day too, but at night he could almost reach out and touch her again, talk to her, tell her he was sorry and that he loved her. Would anything have been any different if he had actually forgotten his pride and bravado for once and actually told her that? Probably not, knowing how stubborn she could be. But it may have meant his feelings about Colin Dexler would have held more weight. Truman may have been able to do more to help Lorraine and to stop her getting so close to that monster. Dexler was a monster, an animal. Truman had experienced every emotion imaginable when Commissioner, Commissioner Roberts had marched into the Criminal Investigation Department on that day two weeks ago. There'd been a call, he said, from a frantic patient at Wildermore Brook. Two bodies, he'd been told. News had caused many explosions in Truman's mind. Then had come the A-bomb that would kill all hope, joy and faith that Truman had clung to throughout his life. One of the bodies was that of Lorraine Thacker. After those words were uttered, silence descended over his world. He did not hear any more that Commissioner Roberts had said. Even the level of noise in the rest of the department, which at times drove Truman to insanity, faded away. He felt as though he was falling to the ground. He could not identify the second body as the face was damaged beyond recognition. Truman later heard from a few gossip agents that there was suspicion, according to the commissioner. It might have been Lorraine's receptionist, as she had gone missing shortly after lunchtime and never returned to her desk. Truman vaguely remembered being escorted from the offices and out onto the street, his mind still numb until the confusion set in. Whatever had gone on between him and Commissioner Roberts in that office still remained a mystery. 
He understood he had, he had to be kept off the investigation due to his past relationship with Lorraine, but to be deemed unfit to fulfil his duties with a kick in the teeth. Then he had committed a fatal error. His judgment had been clouded by rage and grief. Later that night he had found himself at Dexler's front door trying to break it down with his fists. He had known Dexler was there. Where else would a man like him go? But there had been no answer. No curtains had twitched, suggesting he was inside, cowering from Truman like he expected he would. Truman had told himself to leave, that this man simply wasn't worth it, and it would be not long before his men would find Dexler and put, his, put him inside to rot his final days in Wildermore Prison. He'd be miles away from anyone or anywhere that he could cause any more harm, except to himself. But Truman welcomed that thought. As he started to walk away, his eyes had spied an alleyway he'd failed to notice before. No longer in control, Truman had made his way down to the broken garden gate at the end of the walkway. A few paces into the garden, with a helping hand from a few discarded plastic crates lying against the garden fence, and Truman had been in Dexler's backyard. The back door had been unlocked and too tempting to resist. Stop. It could be a trap. Truman had chosen to ignore his common sense once more. Years of lawful intelligence had faded in one moment of madness as he marched through the door and into Dexter's kitchen diner. Nothing had seemed out of place, except for the cold, stale air that hung in the lifeless room. Truman made his way through the next open doorway and into the hall. He had no remorse when he found that cold, dead body of Dexler slumped against the front door. Someone had gotten to him first. No sooner had he knelt beside the corpse and felt for a pulse on the chubby neck before striking on the door and the shouted orders came from outside. They'd come for Dexler, finally. Why had they been shouting Truman's name instead? How had they known he was there? He had no time to ponder the question. His escape had been swift and messy out of the back open door. Scrambling over the next three neighbouring fences and away into the night, away from the flashing blue lights that had shone down the length of Exeter Street. But now, without the rain, he had nothing to live for, and without his badge, he had nothing left to lose. Whenever he pictured Dexter's face, he saw the rains. When he saw hers, he could not bear to close his eyes again. So he reached for the half-empty bottle beside the makeshift bed and took a large gulp, enjoying the warmth it brought. The taste was stale. He'd never... He had neither the inclination nor the strength to leave the solace of the room he had acquired for less than the price of a decent meal. He hadn't ventured far enough to find fresh water to rehydrate himself, not even to brush his teeth and have a shower for about three days. His mouth was dry, his face thick with bristles, and his body stained with dry sweat. To let himself fade away in this hellhole would have been a betrayal to those he had inspired on the force, to himself, and most of all to Lorraine. He needed a wash. He thirsted for a drink that would invigorate his senses rather than mute them. He yearned for somebody to talk to, to help, to unload the thoughts that plagued his days. Most of all, he desperately needed to know the truth of why this had happened to him. He was determined to find out. As he began to rouse himself from his bed, his head dizzying with vertigo, an envelope slid under the door of his room. The only person who knew he was there, to his knowledge, was the landlady who worked nights down the main stretch of Harper's Hill, and to whom he had not divulged his real name. So how the hell could he have post, especially at this hour? He picked up the envelope and ran a, ran a finger along the seal, tearing it open. The effort made his fingers hurt, as did all of his joints. So many sleepless nights and forgotten amounts of booze must be reducing his immune system. He was also succumbing to a cold. 
is he took out the slip of paper the size of a compliment slip you'd usually expect to find included with a free pen from under the seal. His heart paused for the, for the time it took him to take in the elaborate scripture written on the page. Someone had read his mind. The note said, I know who you really are. Let me help you. Time is running out. The envelope was not addressed to him or anyone in particular and the plea written on the blank slip of paper was vague in its, in, in its intentions. Stapled to it was a business card. Simple black text on an ivory background. The symbol of a triangle playing card spade in the top right hand corner. The only insignia. It may have been intended for one of the other residents of the hostel but he didn't believe in coincidences. Something inside him stirred. He had been trained and had trained others to be suspicious of everything until they were able to prove that there was no threat or malice intended. Guilty until proven innocent. But he had the overwhelming feeling of hope. Something he had not felt for many weeks, perhaps even months. He inspected the back of the slip and the card for any more evidence. The address was printed in minuscule text at the bottom of the left-hand corner of the card. He was drawn to the name in, the bold, in bold above could not place where he'd come across it before the name seemed familiar. An old comrade on the force, a drinking buddy from his training days? He drew a blank. How about the less favourable of his past acquaintances? A defence counsellor, a crooked judge, or a slippery criminal he had helped entrap in order to get the sorry son of a bitch behind bars. The name of the practice manager, Dr Mason Stamford, did not mean anything to him. No, it was the symbol on the card that was calling him. Truman found the psychiatrist's surgery easier than he expected. He had not been to this side of Wildermore since he was a teenager. In those days, he and his small band of mates would cycle from the centre of the Barren Moor through the forest across the remains of Harper Falls, a place that one would never think could have had inhabitants. The tracks that had been roads were now so hidden beneath fallen leaves and years of mudslides and the trees so overgrown that the only remaining evidence of the village were lumps of hard stone. The forest had claimed Harper Falls and had choked his life away with relentless bracken tentacles. The forest opened on the other side to a recent development, known as Shepherd's Beach, named not for its proximity to the sea, the nearest shoreline was at least 80 miles to the north and 100 to the west, but for the retreat it had offered those who had once worked in the harsh, unproductive fields across the face of Wildermore. Truman eventually found a small building. The only indication that he was at the right place was a small gold-plated plaque displayed next to the front door, underneath the doorbell. The door was open and inside Truman was met by a friendly receptionist. A rarity in normal NHS doctor surgeries these days. The service was a lot more punctual too. He only had to wait a few minutes before his allotted appointment. After receiving his mysterious card and note under his door, Truman had sworn he would take no notice of it. Must be a hoax or scare tactic. He knew that the police team he'd raised were instructed to find him or were waiting for him to wander back into the town as though nothing had happened. Two more double measures had calmed his nerves that night and had sent him back to sleep. It was then that he saw her face again. Only this time the rain seemed to be trying to tell him something, a voice so faint that he could not make out a sound. Her eyes and hands pleaded and cried in his, and he cried in his dream. He wanted to help, but felt he was failing her, just as he had in the last hours of her life. Behind the shimmering image of the woman he once loved, more and more shapes began to appear, some shrouded in light and some as black as night. The light from the others, the desperate, pleading souls, began to fade in the presence of the shadows, as though their very existence was being sucked into a vortex. 
Truman could have taken this as some sign from a divine authority, but it just confirmed to him that he needed more help. Maybe he needed something to help him sleep, or maybe he should give up on the drink. Whatever it was, something was not right with him. Maybe the anonymous note and invitation had been fate's way of telling him to get his head sorted out. The man who appeared from within the office surprised Truman. He was not what he'd expected. Dr. Stanford stood no more than five foot five, smart cropped black hair peppered with grey flecks, dressed casually in a Nordic patterned sweater and dark jeans. The oddest thing about him was what he wore on his face. He had expected the thin framed spectacles. It was a prerequisite for medical practitioners to wear them these days, it seemed. There was something different. He wore a smile. Not a creepy, forced, I must look happy for any patient smile, but one that was warm, welcoming, comforting, and above all, content. Truman instantly felt at ease with this man and felt that he had known him for years. The doctor had yet to speak to him, but he already had the urge to open up and tell him everything. Coming from years of erecting a barrier between himself and society, all in the best interest of his career and himself, teaching himself to be wary and suspicious of everyone he met, Truman found the feeling unsettling. Mr Lockwood, Dr Stanford stood in the doorway, smiling. Truman recognised the alias he had adopted since fleeing Wildermore. He stood up, now feeling apprehensive and regretting agreeing to come. He wasn't yet ready to have his head split open and his emotions dissected on the slab. Dr Stanford offered his hand and Truman shook it, once again putting him at ease. His legs stopped trembling. It's lovely to meet you, Dr Stanford said warmly. Thank you so much for agreeing to attend. Please, come in. He stepped aside and invited Truman into his office. My pleasure, Doc, Truman replied through gritted teeth. As the door closed behind him, Truman immediately felt trapped. The doctor's office was smaller than expected. Wooden panelled walls darkened the room, but at the same time gave a homely feel to the place. Despite its less than airy nature, the room exuded safety, comfort and seclusion from the outside world. Just what people need when they spend an hour of their time, and more of their money, delving deep into their psyche. This was officially the last place that Truman ever expected he would turn. Mason Stanford made his way over to the sideboard at the far right of his office, where he was busying himself with a cafetiere. Can I get you a coffee, Mr Lockwood, before we begin? Truman was lost in thought, scanning the room with an inspector's eye. Impressed with the number of frames and recognition plaques that lined the wall behind the desk, he could not see that the man was certainly or he could see that the man was certainly well qualified. No, no, thank you, stammered Hugh, stammered Truman. When the doctor glanced over his shoulder to prompt him. If you don't mind, I'll just like to get down to business. Why is it that I'm here? Dr. Stanford, with his coffee mug in hand, walked over to the chair on the near side of the desk and stirred his drink through. He seemed mildly amused by the question. You're asking me why you're here? That statement alone gives me the impression that you are a lost man, Mr. Lockwood. But correct me if I'm wrong. It was you who booked your appointment, was it not? Please, take a seat. He motioned towards the comfy couch opposite the slightly more modest office chair in which he positioned himself. Indeed I did. Truman was embarrassed by his clumsy statement, but only in response to an anonymous, not to mention mysterious, invitation to come here. Truman sat on the edge of his couch and leaned closer towards Stanford, resting his elbows on his knees. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can only imagine that it came from you, Doctor. 
Stanford pondered the comment before answering carefully. You are, of course, correct, Mr Lockwood. Please, call me Ash. Truman wanted to make the experience a little less formal and to make himself more comfortable. Okay, Ash, you know this is this can be a funny business. You can see just about every kind of person walk through those doors, recognise their problems in an instant and never get to know the real them. If I passed half my patients on the street, I would not know them from Adam or Eve. Spend the whole time examining the inner workings of their mind and I'll never get the chance to take in what the person is really all about. Stanford took the chance to lean in and in towards Truman and spoke in a whisper. I have to say, I'm not sure I follow. What does this have to do with me or the note you sent me? The doctor sat back in his chair, sighing as he reclined. In most of my cases, it takes me a long time, many sessions, to scratch the surface with my patients before I discover the real reason why they've come to me. I'm sure the fees they pay for the privilege softens a blow. It's Truman's turn to try and break the ice with humour. Stanford was not so amused. But with you, Mr Lockwood, had you figured out before you even came here, before you even knew about this place? Stanford smiled, displaying pleasure as he spoke. Hell, I would even wager that I know more about you than you do. Truman stared into the eyes of the doctor as he spoke. The warm demeanour that he sensed the moment he first saw Stanford began to wane as he wondered whether the doctor had all his own screws tightened. I doubt that very much. Stanford's stare was strangely hypnotic and Truman found himself feeling as though he'd floated away from his body. He did not enjoy the sensation that he was not in control of the situation he volunteered himself into. We may have never met, and I've only seen you in these parts, and I've been, been in these parts for a matter of days. There's no way that you could even know the simplest things about me. Sorry to disappoint you, Doctor. Again, you are correct. Some things at least. Yes, you have only been in these parts for a few days, and no, we have not met whilst you've been here. But that does not mean I do not know you, and that we have not met before. Stanford spoke with conviction, the tone of his voice becoming grave. Mr. Dark. Truman's breath caught in his chest as once again he was caught in Stanford's stare. His eyes had grown cold, his face appeared more ashen, and had lost the glow that once made him appear so alive. Without blinking or shifting his gaze from Truman's own horrid fa horrified face, Stanford muttered breathlessly, Have you ever considered regression, Mr. Dark? Truman was right, this man was not all there, and the situation was not all it seemed. When he entered the seemingly serene office, he had clung to the hope that he could use the time to relieve some tension, even release some of the guilt which he carried since he fled the town. He felt as though he was frozen to his seat with an, with an invisible force pressing him down. He could feel the weight on his shoulders as he watched Dr Stamford rise from his chair and glide effort, effortlessly towards a locked cabinet on the wall next to his desk. He keyed in a simple three-digit number and removed a black leather pouch. The syringe he held was small, but the needle attached to it almost doubled its length. It couldn't have held more than a milliliter of clear fluid, Truman estimated. The substance had already been drawn back before it was placed in the pouch. Stanford had planned for this, whatever this was, before Truman's arrival. Maybe even before Truman had ever picked up the phone to make the appointment that morning. It hadn't occurred to him that it was odd that he had been able to get a slot to meet with the doctor so quickly. 
he had been trapped, tricked for the second time in as many weeks. Only this time he'd brought it on himself. What the hell? whispered Truman as he watched Stanford raise the syringe to the light. Appearing satisfied, he turned back to Truman, holding the syringe in a way that Truman held his own cigarettes, which he was now yearning once again. Just one drag, just to calm my nerves and stop my hands and knees shaking. You seem tense all of a sudden, Mr. Dark, Stanford declared, showing no concern. I told you I'm here to help you, only if you let me. What sort of help is this? Truman signalled to the syringe Stanford held. Who the hell are you? Who are any of us? The doctor questioned. You're not who you said you were when you entered my office. You are not the person you think you are, and I may not be the person you think I am. It's a puzzle, wouldn't you say? Truman had no idea what Stamford was talking about. Everything about this meeting was becoming more confusing and surreal with each second. Now he was questioning his own sanity more than ever. He knew he had to leave the office, leave the building, and get as far away from this man as he could. Truman had spent an entire career dealing with citizens who were unhinged, but this was the first time he felt scared to the point he himself had felt threatened. He lacked the backup and support of the Wildermore police force, but decided to use the best bluff he had to bide, bide him some time. You stay away from me, Stanford. I can have my guys here before you know it. Stanford scoffed. Your guys? You mean the band of miscreants that run this godforsaken town, who you devoted your life to, bringing up as your own, the very same, that turned on you at the first whiff of your guilt? Truman stared at Stanford for a few seconds longer, his brow creasing into a deep frown as his eyes fell towards the floor. Don't think I don't know what happened to you back there, Truman, he said, using his Christian name for the first time. Didn't you wonder how many... How there were so many of your men surrounding Dexter's place so soon after you arrived. Truman started shaking his head, not, want, not wanting to hear it. What made it worse was this man, as deranged as he was, still made sense. Yes, the same questions had crossed his mind on this journey across Wildermore that night, but he refused to believe it could be true. I thought they'd gotten a lead on Dexter, linking him to Lorraine's murder, or had followed mine. We, we had a trace on him for weeks. Stanford couldn't tell whether the broken man was talking to himself or whether he was trying to convince himself he had not sealed his own fate back at the house in Exeter Street. In truth, Truman was no closer to answering that question either. There was no lead, no trace, mocked Stanford. You were the only one chasing that guy, and since we were on that subject, did you not think to question how, why, you were called here today? My God, man, you're pathetic. You're blind, and we all see you for what you really are. The words carried barbs that cut deep into Truman's flesh. Some divine purpose, perhaps? Stanford teased, reading Truman's thoughts once more. A higher power that was sending you a sign? Again, you're right about one thing. There is a higher power, a ruler and creator of all, but believe me when I tell you, he's not smiling on you. Stanford snarled, drool escaping the corners of his mouth as he spat the words at Truman. Truman needed to call on the last ounce of inner strength he had to leave this place as he had left behind his old life. He could escape Wildermore completely. The whole place was turning on him, pointing crooked and condemning fingers at him. He rose to his feet without looking Stamford in the eye. I'm leaving, he declared as he made for the door. I wouldn't recommend that. The doctor's initial poise, sophistication and warmth returned to his voice, and the man that had just berated him returned to its shell. There is a small matter of my fee, 
Stamford said with a smile. The mask of the madman had dropped in a second and Stamford appeared once more, the ever-caring health worker. The blood started to course through Truman's body once more, his heart pumping like a piston, regenerating every organ and fibre it could. Truman slowly straightened and turned back to face Stamford. The pleasant and expectant smirk written on the man's face made his blood boil. The next few moments passed by in a flash. The space between the two men seemed to evaporate and Truman was on the, on the doctor before he had a chance to realise or mount any defence. The single strike of Truman's fist caught Stamford squarely across the jaw and floored him instantly. The blow had not knocked him unconscious but left his body motionless on the floor. After a couple of tense moments in which Truman feared he had killed the man, Stamford started to stir. Truman wanted to strike him again and rain down his fist, not giving him a chance to look up. He wanted to stomp him into the ground until he was one with the concrete below. He brought his fist down across Stamford's cheek. This is for me. Another struck the back of his head as the doctor tried in vain to protect himself. This is for Lorraine. Truman raised his arm for one final blow. This is for Evelyn. Wait, who's Evelyn? Why did Truman have the sudden urge to avenge her to make this man pay for whatever hurt he had caused her? Truman now began to believe that he was slowly losing the few marbles he had left. He looked down at the crumpled, groaning frame of the doctor, the man who had introduced himself as someone who could help less than ten minutes earlier. What have I done? The blood from the cut that had opened across Stamford's scalp now coated Truman's clenched, bruising fist. He remained, look he remained looking down at Stamford, both of them struggling to catch their breath. The doctor was face down on the floor in front of his desk, but was starting to force his frame up. Truman took slow, backward steps towards the door. As he grabbed the handle and pulled the door wide open, a flash of white appeared in front of his eyes and a searing pain travelled through his head. One blow was enough to knock Truman to the floor. It all happened too fast for Truman to see that the man behind the fist that had hit him. All he saw was a mass of black. The man was huge. Must have been dressed in a dark robe from neck to toe, with a mass of black hair or maybe a hood covering his head. He lay motionless on the floor, temporarily dazed by the fall. The heavy kick that connected with his ribcage brought him rushing back to consciousness, the air escaping his lungs again before he had the chance to draw any back in. He heard a crunch, followed by a shock of pain as one of his ribs broke. His head was spinning and he could not focus. Even his hearing was disorientated and he heard a wall, a wall of confused noise and illegible rambling somewhere behind him. That must be Stamford, who had finally come struggling with his speech due to the swelling that had already set in under his cheek. His jaw had also been bruised but it did not seem to tame, tame his ravings. Get him! Truman could hear him groan at the massive assailant now in the room as he struggled with the words, Couch! The man's strength was unparalleled. Truman was suddenly floating up from the floor and within seconds was on his back on the sofa. Lying on the couch, Truman started to wonder whether Stamford actually had any other patients. Stamford's client base was not Truman's main concern. All he could think about was the pain in his head, the broken rib and the confusion at how he'd ended up there in the first place. He was struggling to breathe due to both the pain and the pressure that was being applied to his shoulders and throat by the boulder-like mitts that held him down. He could not move. His eyes finally began to focus once more as they darted from left to right, trying to get his bearings. Stamford stood at the small, waist-height table underneath the cabinet that had been unlocked earlier. His frame was now slightly hunched as he fought to keep his head up. His head was still spinning from the force of Truman's attack and the shock was slowing him down. Hold him! 
Doctor barked at his assistant. Truman felt the man's hands tighten, their grip on pressing him down hard around his shoulders, making Truman wince and groan as the fingers dug into his collarbone. Stanford appeared above Truman again, brandishing the syringe. This time, however, there was no stopping it. No wisecrack remark or loaded fist could break Truman out of the vice grip that he was being held in. Truman's left arm was forcibly twisted round, bearing his forearm to the air. The sting that followed told Truman the needle had found his home in one of his veins. The warmth spread through him in seconds, causing his muscles to sag and relent, followed by the slowing of breathing and heart rate. The room stopped spinning and every object around him became an in incoherent shape, blobs of colour until the darkness started to creep in. Goodbye, Mr Lockwood, he heard Stamford say. Goodbye, Mr Dark. The voice was becoming distant. Goodbye. The voice called him by another name, one he could not make out, as the darkness and silence took their unshakable hold. The, uh, the main reason I picked that chapter in particular from Acolyte is um, it wasn't one of the most memorable chapters since I wrote it, uh, since, since, I fin since I released the book. Um, but as I was going back through it, I, I just remember, I, I pinpointed, that's the point in the story where Truman Dark has fallen from his, his, his pillar, I suppose, of responsibility, his... Um, uh, he he was the, the 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 authority figure, the protector of Wildemore itself at one point, and he's very quickly fallen into this very dark place, um, and he's he's struggling to find a way out. And this this hint of of hope, this this card, this note that was put under his door, this trap laid by Mason Stanford. Um, it's it's his moment of weakness that really for me showed Truman at his lowest, um, the desperation to to find out more or to to just unload the tension, the pressure, all this darkness that was on him, and inevitably led him to the next stage of his plight. Um, he fell into the trap of Mason Stanford, and he's now in his in his clutches. And this this starts the next major twist in Truman's own tale where he after this point he he learns about his link to Wildemore's past back to the 1680s when the council of eternal light that back to the time that um Evelyn Charles is abducted and he somehow has a part in her life and he's realizing that now that he is linked to that time so that begins the next stage of his his own role within the Wildermore apocalypse. So um, so yeah, um, a pretty sort of seminal part of the story for for that one character. Moving on to book two, the sewing season. I I struggled really in picking a chapter from this. I had one in mind. Um, which I've made reference to in a previous episode, I think in the the one where I actually discussed the sewing season, um, where you see Jacob Crow near the beginning of the book, um, where he is trying to gain access to Mason Stamford. Um, this is set 
after his wife Millie is abducted but at the beginning of the book just in one of those confusing kind of time hops that I, I like to do um, but he's under uh, an alias trying to gain access into St Dymphna's uh, research facility under the guise of a journalist to try and get to Mason Stanford and find out more about where his wife is um, I was going to do that one because it felt most natural it was the first chapter I wrote again when I started writing the sewing season I was really proud of the the intrigue because I didn't really know where the chapter would sit in the book itself but it was one that just felt in me that it needed to be written um, so it's very organic and I love when that happens um, but I've picked another I'm um, sort of flicking through the book this morning there were quite a few I could have used but I thought I would I would go I'm actually going to read a double chapter um, back to back one which um, firstly follows on from the last episode when I read from uh, the early chapters of, of Chasing Grey which and I said some of the material ended up in the sewing season um, the characters did um, Jacob, Millie and her even her Millie's grandfather Wilf I did change their names slightly um, but the chapters I've chosen um, introduced it is Wilf Sturman as he's called in this, in this book Millie's grandfather this is his his main and only appearance in the book um, but I thought it was quite relevant after last week's and also I've I've talked about like the the more human or the dramatic storylines behind but I've not really read any of the the actual the dark horror um, parts of the books so I thought it'd be fun to read these couple of short chapters because it really does give a, a flavour of the the horrors that are actually in these stories so the, what actually makes it a horror book so uh, yeah um, this is if you have the book and you want to follow along or if you have read the book and you know sort of roughly where this is chapters 15 and 16 from the sewing season so hope you enjoy chapter 15 32 Acacia Street Shepherd's Beach Wilf Sturman had struggled to work the central heating system ever since his daughter had insisted he have it installed. The controls would never do what he told them to. The house was always sweltering during night hours and he breathed ice as he often described it during the day. The cold often drove him to leave the house where the chilly early autumn air warmed his bones. Never had this problem with storage heating, he kept telling his daughter Amy. It doesn't work properly, Dad. Look at these bills. It's costing you a fortune. She returned. At 82 years old, he had never found the perfect answer to ever win that battle, and soon enough relented, letting Amy organise a new heating system with the gas company. Wilf even had to admit, though, he'd never, though he never did to Amy's face, that the house did feel better at times. He was just too scared to change his ways and try new things. His dear wife Agnes would never allow such newfangled technology into their home. But Agnes was gone. He laid her to rest almost three years ago to the day after she lost a long, brave battle that her cancer eventually won. His mind fleeted back to hazy memories they shared during their 52 years together and his heart ached. He then thought of Amy, their only child. She was gone too. car accident had taken her and her husband's lives a little short of one year ago. Wolf's chest began to hurt. He began to wheeze as he decided to leave the heating for now. 
and slowly retreated to his armchair. He looked around the living room, which stood almost exactly as Agnes had left it. The house had always been her responsibility. She refused to let him do any of the housework, mainly because Agnes knew that Wilf's idea of cleaning was to create neat little piles of clutter and move them around the house until they all congregated into the same corner of the same room, which in time they would be unable to gain access to and would have to start all over again. No, Agnes had given him the garden to look after, which he tended to with love. He was always out pruning, weeding, planting to make it look nice, to complement the immaculate home that his wife had made for them. As he looked out the lounge window now, however, the garden was unrecognisable from that time. Weeds were now in control and spreading, consuming every patch of lawn and flower bed that they could find. Abandoned spiders' webs clung to the dead stalks of the flowers that had once given the whole property colour and life. He sighed as he yearned for them both, wishing that his life now was simply a, a dream from which he was still waiting to awaken. He immediately admonished himself for feeling that way. There was no way his wife or daughter would want to see him living, or not living, his life like this at the moment. Besides, he still had his granddaughter, the only family member left. She didn't come to visit him every day or even most days, but she was still around, only a couple of miles away across town. Since she had married, there had been less time for her old granddad, but that didn't mean she didn't care. She was always on the end of the phone. At that thought, Wilf decided to give her a call. Talking to her always brought a smile to his face and reminded him that his life was not empty. He reached for the handset on the small side table next to his chair and began to dial. After four rings, there was still no answer, and then Wilf reminded himself that neither of them was there. Millie was planning a surprise trip away on the moors for that night, for her husband's birthday. She'd excitedly updated her granddad of her plans along the way and he instantly smiled to himself again. How he envied the youth of today. Everything was still fresh and new, not yet tainted by broken hearts and painful memories. He replaced the handset and instead reached for the TV remote, pressing the standby button to bring it to life, grumbling to himself as he flicked through the same old recycled programmes, finally setting on a quiz show that he'd probably already seen ten years ago. He still enjoyed playing along despite already knowing all the answers. It made him feel as if he was still in touch with the outside world and confirmed to him that he had not, let, not yet lost his mind. The sound of the buzzers and cheering from the television screen soothed Wolf until he finally rested into a gentle slumber. It wasn't the sound of the fuse blowing that woke Wolf from his sleep, instead of the blanket of silence that had descended on his house. And the cold. The blasted heating must have packed up completely now as he awoke to find he was shivering. He worried for a moment that he had almost lost his that he'd also lost his sight as he could see nothing in the eerie darkness around him. He looked out the window and saw the whole street below him was also in the dark, no street lamps lit on the usual timers. A single car passed down the lane in the distance with its headlights blaring on full beam, the only clue to Wilf that he was not blind. He tuttered as he told himself that it must be a power cut, taking the whole village out by the looks of it. The cold was now eating through his skin, making his bones chatter beneath. He needed a jumper and had to somehow find his way to the bedroom. Wolf's legs were unsteady at the best of times these days and without the luxury of light he began to feel frightened. But he had no choice. He could not sit in his chair all night and freeze to death, only to be found by his granddaughter in two or three days. As the old man heaved himself up from the chair, the TV screen suddenly lit up, startling him and causing him to clutch his chest as he caught his breath. There was no picture, just the fuzzy black and white grain that you used to get when the signal had been lost. The sound of the white noise filled the room getting louder and hurting Wolf's ears. 
You could do nothing but stare at the display on the screen. The sound grew louder still. This was mainly due to the fact that Wilf was now moving closer to the TV unknowingly. The dark specks quickly started to outnumber to white, as if they were absorbing the side of the fuzziness, the darkness getting thicker and taking over most of the screen. Then a shape began to form, a dark patch elongating and shifting into... Was it? Yes. Kind of resembled a head, but one without a face. Maybe a black hood? Will found himself only a couple of inches from the screen and didn't hear the explosion from within the set before the glass shattered and cut his face to shreds. The impact set him sent him sprawling on his back about five feet from where he was stood before. His trembling hands instinctively reached for his face, but his heart struggled with the shock of what they felt. A mass of torn tissue, ripped muscle and exposed bone. Loose shreds came away in his fingers. He tried to scream, but much of the structure of his lower jaw had been torn apart in the blast. Somehow he managed to turn onto his side and began to crawl across the blood-soaked carpet. The pain did not exist as there was too much of it. He could not see, for shards of thick glass had pierced both his eyes and still lay embedded in his lifeless, oozing balls of white that were left. Then they came. Slithering out from behind, the broken screen came four thick, slithery black shapes. As they reached the floor, they stood to full height as their legs formed once more. One towered above the others, its scaly head brushing against the ceiling. From the ends of all eight arms grew razor-like claws on knobbly, grotesque fingers. Their eyes were now burning an angry red as they leered down at the broken old man on the floor, their mouthless faces somehow purveying an amusement as he lay dying and whimpering. The taller Umbra struck first with full force, bringing down one of his arms through Wolf's back. With the blow he drew in his last painful breath, and with his last moment, felt the Umbra's claws tear his insides out through the hole in his back. To the Umbra, mercy was a dirty word. The other three demons followed suit and tore away at Wilf's body until no flesh remained on his bones. Chapter 16 From sundown the Umbra slithered across the face of the moor, invading homes and taking souls at will. Their present caused all power sources to fail, so the town and villages were plunged into darkness, blind to the terror that would soon be unfolding around them. No home, building or street was safe and was soon crawling with the reaper's minions, silently and blindly gaining access through the smallest crevices. Nobody was safe. Inside these houses the air was filled with screams and the sound of tearing flesh as it was lifted from the bones. The umbra did not, like, did not eat like humans, for they were anything but. Their faces were vacant and empty save for the set of glowing eyes. The souls, blood and fragments of those that had devoured were absorbed through the darkness, the void, that made up their skin. Those fortunate enough to not be dined upon by the demons were taken away, to be victims to a much ghastlier fate. From a central standpoint, the Reaper stood watching his plan unfold through the many sets of evil eyes of, our, of his army of shadows. The fire that had taken his life and given him his eternal rage started to build as he watched the rust-coloured saloon car back away from the woods near Tuke's range, turn back on itself sharply in a perfect 180-degree spin and speed away into the distance. The loss of the boy was no concern, for the Reaper knew he could, and would, retrieve him whenever he wanted to. 
Now the source of his rage now was the face of the man who had taken Jacob away. A face the reaper knew he knew, but the memories were too distant, erased from his mind the night that his human form had burned away. For now the Umbras were busy collecting those who would soon be part of the ever-growing demon army that marched behind him, and those who were not fit for purpose he allowed the shadows to have their fun with and feed. The seeds were being sown. All he had to do was wait for them to grow and feed until there was nothing left around them. So even reading those chapters back again, first time really that I've I've read through that book properly since it was released. So we're talking about four years ago. Um, it's... Um, it turns out they were the perfect chapters to pick because the one that I've picked for the from the final book of Gods and Insects um, is is following on the destruction that the Umbra and uh, the Umbra army are unleashing on Wildemore. At the um, towards the end of the sowing season, we um, I've mentioned it I think in the sowing season episode. There is a scene set at a wedding where one of the congregation um, unveils themselves to be an umbra um, wearing human skin and he emerges from beneath the skin and the umbra just wreaks havoc um, that really sets up where of gods and insects starts or towards the beginning of the book, we, we have a continuation of that scene. So the chapter that I picked from A Gods and Insects is probably, certainly from that last book, it's it's my favourite moment from Of Gods and Insects um, because it is the moment that I bring into Wildemore my my favourite creation. I, I've introduced him before, the, the Tricker Jack. Um, I will elaborate more on the Tricker Jack character in uh, season two because um, season two is going to be centered around the stories that um, um, from the Tricker Jack kind of universe. Um, but this was the moment that I brought those two sides of my my writing universe together um, by bringing the Tricker Jack into Wildermore. And yeah, the chapter that I'm going to read. Um, finally to to finish off this episode um is is that point when he's introduced and um yeah i i think i'm gonna have a lot of fun reading this one as i was when i was writing it so uh, again enjoy so this is chapter seven from of gods and insects the air turned to a cacophony of shouts, screams, terrified, tear-driven cries of the bodies racing to and fro between the two nearby streets and the destroyed grocer's shop. The dead were beyond repair and many of the crowd knew it, but they continued in their fruitless efforts to help them, dragging their bodies from amongst the debris. For most of them, the sight of the monstrosity that had caused the carnage had driven them mad, causing common sense and belief to disappear. An elderly, elderly man remained fixed to the spot, his stare frozen as if it had been painted upon his face by a clever street artist, facing the direction in which the cluster of umbra had disappeared, further up the main street leading to the town centre towards a horde of fresh blood. The period of growth that the council had referred to as the sowing season had brought forth a new breed within the reaper's army. 
New Umbra were fuelled by the fires of hell, driven only by the suffering of the living and the need to harvest more of their own. But unlike the generations before them, they had a new power, one that made them even more dangerous, perhaps even unstoppable. Awareness. They could now think for themselves. Something resembling a mind, a direct result of Dr. Mark Stone's researches dating back to his own previous existence. The splicing of human and demon DNA. A marriage that could not only destroy one community, but maybe the entire country, and soon the world. But why stop there? The plan, he had been told, was for Julius Archibald to one day control not only this world, but the others that cannot be seen. In short, the world of the dead that burned beneath the earth, and that of the saved, high above the clouds. If it all went to plan, soon there would be no earth, heaven or hell. The council would show the heathens, those who had descended from the powers that had driven him, his brother and all their god-faring people into hiding centuries before, that only one world need exist. His. Stone had yet to witness his creations in action and could only dream of their power, their potential. The terrified folk had happened to be bustling through Wildermore Town that day, witnessed it first hand. The sounds of frenzied destruction, the mouthless snarls of the few umbra that had drifted together with one sole purpose, to kill those who now lay in a dusty heap before moving on to find their next quarrel, suddenly faded. Only the laboured breathing of the tired and the scared would-be Samaritans, hands bloodied and covered in shards of the shattered shop's window, could be heard. A muffled cry sounded as one woman buried her head against her husband's shoulder, the others turned her way, each sharing in the woman's moment of anguish, and then a gentle breeze blew towards the crowd, coupled with a somewhat soothing, clicking sound. When the breeze, with the breeze came a plume of black smoke that engulfed all they could see behind them, quickly turning to a pale white. The clicking sound grew, maintaining its rhythm, its in turn slowing their hearts, warming their minds. They all stood, shoulders sagged as their efforts finally took hold. Their minds instantly became clear. They'd done all they could for the unfortunate ones who had just lost their lives. Something was calling to them silently, telling them not to fear. Something was coming. The elderly man's features finally thawed, his previous contorted, pained face now relaxed as he stepped through the milling crowd, staring into the, into the dissipating fog. The clicking continued, but now resembled, resembled something clattering against the pavement, not scraping as if injured, but something that moved more majestically. A shadow appeared behind the smoke as the last of it finally trailed away. The clatter on the pavement could now be seen as a pair of perfectly polished shoes with glistening gold buckles, the movements flawlessly timed and announced by the intermittent tapping of a walking cane. The crowd drew breath as the man appeared. Exquisitely dressed, a long coat made of crushed black velvet floated only an inch above the ground, sitting atop a narrow set of shoulders. The beautiful face of the man appeared almost ethereally from beneath the black top hat. The man stopped a few yards from the awe-stricken crowd, turning his head to observe the carnage, then again as if pointing his ears in all directions, listening for something. But he heard nothing. Everything had fallen silent, even the breathing of the crowd before him, it seemed. Ackley Patterson Thorne returned his gaze to the grocer's, the corner of his mouth now creasing into a half-smile. Julius, he muttered to himself, 
What have you done? The old man crossed himself with a trembling hand, touching his forehead, chest and each shoulder in return. Simple action drew the well-dressed stranger's attention to him, sparking a flame behind those black eyes, marking them, making them flash in an unnerving shale. Simple action drew the well-dressed stranger's attention to him, sparking a flame behind those black eyes, making them flash in an unnerving shade of sapphire. The old man's hand returned and rested upon his chest, frozen once more, but this time held still only by Ackerley's stare. People gathered behind the old man each took a step back in unison as if entranced. A sharp, rasped breath broke the silence as the old man struggled for, to breathe. Despite his struggle, he managed to utter a few breathless words. You're him, he said as the colour drained from his face, seemingly into the whites of his eyes as they instantly appeared bloodshot. Ackerley smiled, letting out a single burst of harsh laughter. How observant of you, sir. He ran his eyes across each of the ghostly white faces that watched in silence, their own eyes widening as the last of the old man's breath escaped, made visible by a few bubbles in the corner of his mouth as his spittle gurgled. His hand remained on his chest as his body slumped to the ground, dead. His life appeared to have evaporated and snuffed out within a moment. Ackley looked down pitifully at the corpse, the dead man's head too close to the glistening boot for comfort. He kicked away the offending body part, shooting a dark and damning stare to those who remained frozen to the spot, mouths agape as they tried to make sense of yet another display of fragile mortality. The well-dressed man appeared about to leave the scene, but changed his mind at the last moment. The front of the grocer's shop was now just a gaping hole in the two-storey brick structure, and surely in danger of soon collapsing in on itself. That very fact made Ackley's next action even more confusing to the gawping crowd. Instead of entering the shop through the eye of the carnage in a purely gentlemanly manner, he instead chose to step through the door to the gentle jangle of the bell that had been previously joyfully signalled every customer's arrival. He even took a moment to close the door behind him. The trance that bewitched the crowd suddenly lifted, each of them in turn stepping forward to view what happened next. A dust cloud rose from the pile of rubble as Ackerley stepped between the twisted remains of a couple of shelving units and brushing the open sides of his long coat behind him, crouched elegantly beside the first unfortunate soul lying broken on the floor. It was a man. His throat had been torn open and the flesh of his face ripped away to just below his eyes. He had been the driver of the car that remained on the far right of the sickening scene, now a permanent fixture of the building itself the hood of the car buried within the brickwork. The crowd outside drew closer, fighting each other as they peered through the huge gash across the entrance, paying no mind to how the shards of glass could cut their hands to shreds as they poked their heads through the jagged window frames. As quickly as the colour had flooded back to their faces, it soon disappeared, a sudden rush of blood dizzying them as they observed what had happened. Ackley placed one hand on the dead man's head. Upon his touch, the man's legs twitched, spasms racking his body as the dead nerves awoke. His fingers moved, and his hands drew in close to his body. His body shook uncontrollably, the ripples rising fluidly up the full length of his body. Then they stopped. The man lay perfectly still, but as the woman at the front of the observers scaled the remains of the low brick wall that had previously made up part of the shop's face, she stared in horror bringing her own hand to cover her mouth to stifle a cry of either horror or wonderment as the gaping wound across the neck repaired itself. 
actually simply pushed the scraps of the man's torn face back into place, the skin knitted together as if it had never been severed, not even a line of blood or slight scratch to show the previous mortal injury. The woman's vision instantly turned to grey as every belief she had of the world around her died. All that remained, all that even mattered at that moment, was the well-dressed man, Ackley Patterson Thorne. He resembled divinity, a miracle. Ackley finally drew his hand away from the reborn man's head, returning it to stroke his hair as a father would do when consoling a troubled child. The corpse suddenly shifted, bringing its legs up to its chest, remaining for a few moments in some kind of fetal position before the limbs lifted him up. Against all realms of possibility, he was standing again. When he was at last at full height, Ackley looked at him, mildly impressed but far from awe-stricken at his own ability. A man such as he was only too aware of his power, but knew that he could still do better. With a flourish, he brought the sides of the long coat back together, closing it around his front with his hands as he turned away from the reborn, addressing his spectators. You see, it's very simple, he said, as if he, having just completed a demonstration at a science fair. I can either create life, he continued, glancing back at the reanimation behind him, as the man stared at his own hands dumbly. Or I can take it away. Ackerley signalled to the crumpled body of the dead old man outside, the crowd following the line of his arm to look at the body. For a few darkening moments they had forgotten about the dead man. Ackerley drew his face closer to the woman at the front of the group, making her gasp as she turned her head back, disgusted at the sight of another dead soul behind her. Ackley's eyes, now an intense purple, swirling like a vortex towards the empty black hole at their centre. The woman looked past Ackley, again at the man who was now almost fully aware of his own rebirth. Win or lose, Ackley whispered to her. Life or death? Salvation or damnation? It's all simply a matter of choice. Ackley crossed to the front door of the shop, opened it and skipped outside, finding the sound of the bell equally as pleasing the second time round. He pulled the door closed behind him. He took several jaunty paces down the street, swinging his cane playfully in a perfect arc, twice before resting it back on the pavement, before stopping again, pivoting on both feet to face the bewildered mob at the shop front. Follow me, or return to your homes and await your deaths, he said coldly. That is your choice. Without another word, he turned on his feet and carried on down the street, pursing his lips and whistling a merry tune as he headed towards the crowded town centre that waited half a mile down the road. Having witnessed a few events that had seemingly altered their very perception of everything they ever knew, their choices already made. The group quickly followed. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed... Um those snippets from across the uh, the breadth of the World of More Apocalypse. Um, obviously a lot more material in each one, so do please, uh, if you are still intrigued, um, do please um, grab your copies of the books. The uh, uh, the first two parts, Acolyte and The Sewing Season, are currently available, uh, ebook and paperback form, um, on all major book sites, particularly Amazon, um, Waterstones. Um, and um, very soon, hopefully, of Gods and Insects will be back out there as well. Um, 
my publisher for the World of War Apocalypse, Britain's Next Bestseller, have, uh, have advised me they're, they're very close at being able to, to send it over to me um, to sort of have a look at and that before release. So I'm going to be really excited about seeing that the full trilogy back out there in its new form. Um, what they've done with the first two uh, first two books to to bring them up to date and give them new life. They look amazing and and I'm still um, falling back in love with the stories. It's it's very easy as a writer to not lose touch so much but when you when you finish a book you put it out there you it really does belong to the public then to the readers um you you don't necessarily go back and revisit it yourself you've lived the story again through people's feedback through their reviews so if you have read the stories please um encourage any others that you might know of who who would enjoy reading them but also leave it something as simple as leaving a review on goodreads and amazon is um, is massive to all all us writers really so um so please yeah just just pop a quick review on um could be honest if you didn't like it that's brilliant as well you know just just your take on the book really um that last chapter that i read from a gods and insects um i think i managed to to pick chapters which really felt um fed into each other particularly with the the umbra appearing in the sewing season in in that one and then going forwards obviously um the the aftermath of their destruction in that scene in the of gods and insects and and the tricker jack appearing in Wildermore it's is a massive um st- massive part of the story arc in those two parts is how the umbra army was growing and then um the tricker jack comes into a gotten insects earlier than i remembered actually that was sort of around but chapter seven i think it was that he actually was introduced so he had a much bigger part that i then i remember him playing but he's a central character in that that final part of the trilogy because you start off not knowing what his role is to be fair I didn't really know what was going to happen I knew I wanted him there I knew I wanted him to be an opposing force so it's almost like um you know the 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 holy value of the number three really um unknowingly came through in that last book because you've got the the power of good with um uh, with Truman Dark and with Jacob Crow and with Elijah Strong and then you've got the the Reaper and the Council of Eternal Light opposing them, the, the forces of darkness and then you've got the Trickerjack which really belongs to the world of the darkness um, but he seems to be opposed to the Reaper and to the Council of Eternal Light so it's made a really interesting dynamic in that last book So um, so yeah, I'll keep adding updates onto my Facebook, my Instagram. Um, I have a new website now as well. Go check it out, christetchorplay.com. I'll put the link in the notes to this, um, into the description for this episode as well. Um, but all updates um, for the re-release of, of, of Gods and Insects will be across all my platforms. So um, pop a follow, a like on my Facebook, follow me on Instagram, pop along to uh, chrisdetchorplay.com and um, as soon as I know it the the release date will be up there that you can then enjoy of Gods and Insects again um, if you in the meantime though if you haven't read the first two again Acolyte and the Sewing Season are 
readily available in Kindle and paperback form through Amazon, uh, Waterstones if you're in the UK. Um, so in closing, it is now just time for me to do my um, This Day in History. So the 14th of July. I think the biggest thing really for this date is that on, in um, 1789, so July 14th, 1789, the French Revolution begins with the fall of the Bastille prison. So um, it's, uh, this day, July 14th, is, is then forever been known since that as Bastille Day. Um, also in 1933, keeping on the, the, history, um, the history thread, 1933, on this day all non-Nazi parties were banned in Germany. And um, a few years later, in 1941, 6,000 Lithuanian Jews are exterminated at Vesalsian camp. I think I've pronounced that right. I do apologise if I haven't. And film and TV, just a just a nice, um, fun one for any film buffs out there. On this day in 1969, Easy Rider, directed by Dennis Hopper, starring himself, Peter Fonda, and Jack Nicholson, is released. So that's uh, still a film I haven't, um, I've heard so much about it, I still haven't watched it. Maybe I'll have to add that to my to my film bucket list. Um, thanks as ever to the guys over at onthisday.com for um, for the information. That's where I pull the um, a, a few of the snippets for these um, This Day in History features. So, so that about wraps up um, episode nine for Dead Men Talk. Thank you so much again for listening in, not only to this one, but to all the other episodes. Um, I'm having a blast. You know, not just, it's not just about talking about myself. It's reliving my writing journey because I'm, I'm always looking into the future, you know, trying to work on something, trying to picture in what I want to create or achieve in the future. Um, that when you write a book and put it out there, you kind of walk away from it. So having the opportunity to to go back for myself and rediscover these and relive the memories behind when I was writing the books and even reliving like I've done today some of the actual chapters in the books is is amazing for me so so please carry on um, supporting the podcast even just sharing it to family and friends just trying to grow my my listener base um, but you know thank you for tuning in it's the reason I still do it so um, I shall be back next week um, for the what will be the official final episode of the first season of Dead Men Talk. Um, I will be welcoming a very special guest. I won't give any hints. Um, but this person is quite vital in um, in my, my writing journey at the moment. And it's, it helps tie together. It helps bridge the gap onto what season two will will hold when it... Um, when it launches in September so uh, so I'll be talking really about a more current piece of work next week um, talking to the, the special guest and um, just giving you a flavour of what to expect in season two so thank you very much and I will speak to you next week